Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Encouraging you to live as an ambassador of God's kingdom in the world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Good morning, everybody, here on Monday morning. Happy Monday morning on the 4th of October. You can probably tell from the sound of my voice, if you're thinking you're going to wake up with Carmen LeBurge this morning, that that is not happening. This is Dr. Peter Kapsner filling in for today as Carmen is away with some family on this Monday morning, and I'm delighted to be with you as we start our day fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Paul Perot in studio, as always, producing the show. Good morning, Paul. Great to be with you and, and Good uh, just morning. see you here in studio. On a, at least where we are, very foggy Monday morning, and uh, the, the moon has sort of this ominous feel about it. You can only mm, see a slice yeah. of it through the fog. It was a great way to, to wake up on that. And, it was uh, a fun drive in for me. Like. <laughs> it, it was indeed. And I am noting just from some of the early uh, headlines that are probably unimportant and yet have my attention this morning that it is both National Taco Day day today and it's also national cinnamon roll day and i don't know if you have to pick between the two uh in in terms of what you're going to celebrate today or if you just start with that cinnamon roll and then roll into the tacos later today well you can do that i just like the fact that okay uh, National Taco Day is falling on a Monday, so we have a twofer. We do. Because you have Taco Tuesday, you, do. you have National Taco Day Monday. I mean, what could be wrong with that? While well, tacos are beginning to dominate our culture quite, quite, quite clearly. And speaking of culture, our first guest this morning, Jeff Bilbrow, we're going to talk a little bit about the, the seeming decay and decline of American democracy. And I think a lot of us are wondering about what the future looks like. It's been such a time of uncertainty. Obviously, COVID has shifted the ground on which we walk. Those pathways are very uncertain day in and day out. You look at the political tension as well and, and uh, clearly having moved from philosophical differences to the moralization one side of the other as being evil, whether you're more conservative, you may use words like evil of the liberal agenda, or liberals might use the word evil of the conservative agenda in Washington, D.C., and, and so we see significant tension there as we're wondering about the future of our democracy. And part of what can be really helpful in charting out the way forward is to also be a student of history. We're going to talk about Jeff, uh, talk about that with Jeff in, in just a minute, but the scriptures consistently invite us to remember the people of God so quickly and easily forget their past. They forget the faithfulness of God. They forget the stories from which they come. The heart of our weekly Sabbath celebrations is meant to be celebrated around the communion table where Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. Look back towards the past. Know that the power that conquered sin and death some 2,000 years ago is still available today. Remember that that is your Story, Or in Exodus chapter 1, we see that the Pharaoh of Egypt was wanting to wipe out all of the male children because they were seen as the carriers of memory on behalf of the people of Egypt. They were the tellers of the stories. They were the reflectors on the faithfulness of God in the past, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Pharaoh knew that if he could wipe out those male children, that he could wipe out the memory of Israel, and they would forget who they were and whose they were, and thus they would be very easy to subdue. So we're going to talk with Jeff here in just a minute about the 
function of history, the function of memory, and how it relates to our rootedness as people as we walk in these very uncertain times. So welcome to Mornings Without Carmen this morning. I'm Peter Kapsner, filling in for the day. About nine minutes past the top of the hour. I'm Peter Kapsner filling in for Carmen Liberta this morning and delighted to welcome Jeff Bilbro from Grove City College. He's an associate professor of English. Been on the show a few different times talking about his books that he has released and for the first time this morning talking about some of the headlines that are intersecting with us as believers. Good morning, Jeff. Good morning. Great to have you. We were talking at the top of the hour here that it is National Cinnamon Roll Day and National Taco Day are either one of these two uh, food items of interest to you. Of course, of course, yeah. Uh, although I must say I have more tacos than cinnamon rolls, but they're both uh, tasty. Yeah, at, at this point uh, in time in my life, a cinnamon roll might have a 1,000 calories, but somehow it becomes 4,000 calories as it enters yeah. my system. Yeah. So, well, great to have you. We're going to talk a little bit about memory this morning, the importance of it. I'm going to start with a quote that uh, was part of what you and I and Paul Perot have been talking about prior to the show from an article called History as a Way of Knowing. And the quote is this, a culture without memory will hardly be a culture at all. It will be barbarous, easily tyrannized, even if it is technologically advanced, because the incessant drumbeat of daily events will drown out all reflective efforts to connect past, present, and future, and thereby understanding the things that unfold in our time, including the path of our own lives. And what Bill McClay is talking about in this article is that it is really difficult to understand where we're headed in our future unless we are rooted or anchored in the past. So tell us what you see in this article. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I look for when I'm trying to understand current events is for people who are thoughtfully connecting what's going on right now with a longer narrative of, of who we are, where we've been. And it's difficult, right? I mean, Bill is not suggesting this is an easy task. He's, I think, quite aware of the challenges and the ways that memory can exclude certain stories or certain people. Um but also that we can't live without it. And, um, you know, trying to, to cut ourselves off from the past only sets us adrift in a, a, a present without, without uh, the moorings that we need to navigate it. So I think Bill's really helpful on this. And, you know, I think one of the things that I try to look for, as I said, when I'm trying to make sense of what's going on now is people who bring that kind of a historical perspective to bear on, on the events of the day. And Jeff, as believers, we have sort of these dueling histories that we attend to when we think about our past. Clearly, we are citizens of this country. And let's start there first, just talking about the importance of understanding our past as a country and some of what's happening within the arguments of different sides of saying, what is our past as our country? Is, is our past one that we should honor? Is, a, is our past one that we should repent from? Some combination. How do we understand our past as citizens among the historians of our culture? Yeah, Bill's got a pretty good book that came out maybe two years ago, I think, called Land of Hope. Um, that's a sort of brief, well, relatively brief history of America uh, in which he tries to um, draw a kind of unified narrative around uh, the, both the promise and the failures of um, the American nation. So I think I think he does a pretty good job of trying to, to be honest about the failings, but still um, find find reasons to uh 
to understand and to admire aspects of our past and, and our nation as well. Um, so that's, that's one place to, 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 to start, I guess. Um, and, and, you know, it's much easier to kind of uh, point out flaws in our uh, forebears and then seek to just dismiss them rather than trying to understand people and their full complexity uh, as both, you know, admirable in, in some ways and sometimes not admirable and trying to wrestle with that and then think, huh, maybe I have that same mix in my own life and I should uh, view their flaws as a provocation to repent and, uh, and, and try to do better myself rather than just cast stones. And Jeff, history does teach us that civilizations ultimately do decline and right. fail. When you when you look in the past and you see the Rome or Babylon or Assyria, some of these major civilizations, Grecian civilization, yep. we see that they do come to an end. And in the midst of that, I think in the fear of that related to our country, whenever that day may come in the future, we are part of a different kind of kingdom, right, with a different right. kind of past. And so tell us Absolutely. just a little bit about what we see. If the worst should happen in our country and it's no longer and sometime in the future, the United States of America, the, the lines on the map, we're still anchored with memory in a different kind of kingdom. That's exactly right. Uh, you know, one of the things I love teaching um, Dante's Divine Comedy to my students in part because I think he does a great job of uh, valuing the history of his particular uh country, which is basically Florence, the city of Florence in Italy, uh, but also, you know, the, the kind of Roman Empire that was part, that was rooted in, in Italy, obviously. Um, but but also, as you just said, uh, all these um, earthly orders rise and fall, and ultimately, the, the, the drama, the history, the narrative that we should root our lives in is... Um, the, the narrative of God's work in creation. So I think Dante does a great job of showing how that can be done and of kind of reorienting uh, students, I guess, immediate frame of reference from uh, the political order that we happen to, to find ourselves in, which certainly matters, um, but but more primarily rooting ourselves in the, the Christian order of the world that um, that's our ultimate home. Jeff, one more point on this, and that would be if you're a parent or a grandparent and you're in the lives of your children or your grandchildren, how do we think about shepherding them in these uncertain times then? I know that school systems historically have been places that help teach our young people how to be good, fair-minded, other-centered, contributing citizens to the United States of America. But if that increasingly is a, is a difficult proposition to educate or shepherd in that way, what do we do as parents and grandparents to shepherd our kids from maybe more of a, of a kingdom mindset, regardless of what's going on in our country? Well, that's a great question, Peter. I mean, I think one thing is to, um, to kind of resist the narratives of either simplistic fear, you know, that, that kind of over-identifying with American uh, the American story and, and seeing that if it, you know, if, if and when America decays, that's some kind of an ultimate tragedy. Uh, but on the other hand, um, avoiding a, a kind of simplistic uh, criticism of all people who have come before us and, and uh, a, a failure really to uphold um, exemplary uh, people who, who we can teach our, our children or our grandchildren to admire and to, to see in their full complexity. So, you know, I, I like to read my daughter a lot of different uh, age-appropriate biographies of Christian heroes, of, um, you know, interesting people in the country and, and outside of it. And I think that's a kind of looking through these stories of people, you know, and their 
their messy lives is a great way of coming to appreciate different times and uh, to, to find kind of virtuous people who uh, struggled to, to live out their faith in, um, in the past. Talking with Jeff Bilbrow this morning, Grove City College. He's an associate professor of English about some of the just daily topics of our lives and, and navigating what's going on in our country, top of the mind things. Jeff, we're going to step away for just a minute for a short break. When we come back, let's turn the topic to something called biopolitics. And we're talking about the intersection of the vaccine mandate with our own personal individualized choice and how we're going to walk that out moving forward. So stay with us. If you're listening this morning here, it is about 17 minutes past the top of the hour. I'm Mornings Without Carmen. I'm Peter Kapsner, filling in for the day. Jeff, I don't know where Paul Perot comes up with this stuff in terms of a taco song to celebrate National Taco. They're coming back. And this, this was wholly unanticipated by me. It's a little early in the day to be thinking about tacos, but it is National Taco Day. And You've uh, never had a breakfast burrito or anything I, like you that? Know, it just seems a little aggressive to me in the morning, I have to say. But, uh, but Jeff, thanks again for joining us. Uh, lots to talk about. I know one of the very non-controversial things that we could get into this morning would be the vaccine <laughs> mandate. It was really interesting coming back to school with my students that I teach at the University of Northwestern St. Paul in the ethics course. And, and that course on, on social ethics is fascinating to me because you can sort of trace the evolution of top of the mind topics among young people. And a year ago, I wouldn't have had to cover anything ethically about a vaccine mandate. We weren't even talking about that as a nation. And yep. yet this is now something that is tearing apart families, believers, tearing apart politics. Uh, wh- what do you see in this field of biopolitics at the intersection of our political life and our medical decisions? Yeah, as you said, no matter what I say at this point, uh, people are going to be offended. And I think that's just the nature of the discussion right now. But it's also, uh, uh, hopefully, an opportunity to have some um, deeper questions about uh, the nature of our of our communities, nature of health, period, um, and and think about you know whatever sort of prudential decision you need to make on the vaccine is hopefully rooted in a, in a more robust uh, understanding of our responsibilities to each other. So, uh, I think this, this essay that we're, we're talking about by Matthew Loftus, uh, where he says, biopolitics are unavoidable is a good place to start because he, he begins with a quote from one of my favorite authors, Wendell Berry, who, um, whose whole understanding of, uh, health is non individualistic. You know, uh, we depend, our, our health is dependent upon, uh, the place we live, the ecology of that place, our community, the food we eat, uh, the, the, the water we drink. So vaccines are, and infectious diseases are one aspect of that, but certainly not the only way in which our health is, uh, is communal. And I think just beginning with that recognition and then as Christians, uh, addressing that not from an individualistic perspective about what do I want to do, what's best for me personally, but uh, what is my? How can I best love my neighbor in this context? And what is what is loving our neighbor uh, as ourselves look like right now? If we begin from that that Christian perspective, hopefully at least the conversation is less heated, and. Um, I think it's a more Christian approach to the, to the issues. Yeah, I think what you just said as a foundation for decision making related to whether or not you would take the vaccine 
is really an important piece of the puzzle. The idea of communal health is something I hadn't considered before reading a bit from Wendell Berry. I highly recommend him as, as an author for understanding this because just even the health of the microbes of the soil, for example, right. has, has right. a tremendous impact on our own personal health. So, so it's a bit of a false narrative to suggest that we are fully individualized in our health. And yet at the same time, I think a fair-minded person can say, hey, look, we don't really know for sure what the long-term impact of, of vaccination is going to be. We do see that it seems to be helpful in slowing down the, the, the most difficult cases of the of COVID and, and the Delta variant right now. But at the same time, you could make the argument that I don't, I don't know what this is going to do to me 10 years down the road. But to your point, when we have these conversations, we need to be anchored in our decision-making related to one another, not just what's best for me. And, and I think to walk out of the hyper-individualism of that so that we're thinking about one another regardless of choice, right? This is what we're, we're trying to encourage people to think through from a Christian standpoint. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and you know, we, we Christians, I think, do a more or less pretty good job of this in, in terms of abortion. Uh, and, and pro-life politics. And so it makes sense, I think, that we uh, recognize our kind of mutual interdependence uh, in, a, in the context of an infectious disease that obviously, um, you know, we can become uh, toxic. We can become the spreaders of disease to our neighbors. And so we have an obligation to think, wow, uh, what can I do to love my neighbors? And again, as you said, there's certainly a lot we don't know. There's risks, I think, all around. And there is no riskless, um, you know, path forward. Everything we do has trade-offs. So I don't want to pretend that, that it's a simple decision at that point. But um, you know, beginning from that posture of, of loving the neighbor and recognizing our our dependence upon them and their dependence on us, and uh, trying to make the decision based on on yeah how we can embody that love best is a much more healthy posture than one that just begins with my individual individual rights. Hmm. Uh, Jeff, I appreciate you wading into those hazardous waters. I know the other night there's a localized app called uh, Nextdoor, and uh, where I live in the community, somebody decided to ask some questions about the vaccine. And, of course, I think within 30 seconds there were 6,000 posts. And, and, and it's just amazing how people are not necessarily – trying to think through all of the different angles of this on behalf yeah. of one another. Well, one other piece of the community that we should probably talk about this morning has to do with minor league baseball. Yes. We've got a couple. Uh, yes, exactly. We've got a couple minutes left here this morning. You and I are big baseball fans. The end of the baseball regular season happened yesterday. Playoffs began tomorrow, major league baseball. But something that I didn't know was happening was the loss of a lot of minor league baseball. And baseball is one of those historically communal based uh, sports where people just gather together for an indefinite amount of time to, to watch a baseball game. And there's a lot of small communities in our country that have hosted minor league baseball teams. But we're starting to see maybe at, at the altar of efficiency, a lot of these minor league programs are going to be uh, taken out of place. So tell us what's happening here. Yeah, so this has been going on for a couple of years that uh, MLB Major League Baseball for, that, for apparently to save money and apparently to, to give uh, better salaries to the minor league players who uh, who would remain once the pair downs pretty significantly the the number of minor league teams and kind of standardize that. And I think it makes sense from an efficiency point uh, perspective in some respects, although again, whether they're actually doing it for the good of the minor league players or or just to improve the bottom line of the owners is a, uh, another question. But yeah, it's a it's a real loss for a lot of these small mid-sized towns who have uh, a minor league team that uh, is a is an opportunity for the community to gather kind of like you know Friday night lights 
in, in many communities, um, minor league baseball is a is a kind of nexus of, of gathering and, and communal. It's, a, it's an American pastime. It's a community pastime. And with the, the commercialization of sports and the kind of big business, big entertainment um, takeover, I think that that element can be can be lost. But for um, for a lot of communities, this is going to be tough that they no longer have their minor league team that they've supported for decades. Yeah, it is a sweet place to go for an evening of fun just for some minor league baseball. So hopefully we have some other ways to gather as a community. Yes. Jeff, we got to leave it right there for this morning, but thanks for joining us. And just with such wisdom on some really difficult topics this morning, have a great rest of the day. You too, Peter. Thanks much. We'll step away for just a minute and have some bottom of the hour news in a couple of minutes. And in the second half of hour one of Mornings Without Carmen, we're going to be joined by Adam Carrington and we'll continue some of these difficult conversations. Adam is going to talk about what he sees with the abortion decisions coming up in the Supreme Court. Well, as we wake up to the start of a new week, there's quite a bit going on in our country, and I'm glad that Adam Carrington's going to join us next to talk through some of these issues, including what's happening with the Supreme Court as it opens its new term today. Agenda packed, certainly, with some hot-button issues. List includes abortion, gun regulations, and religion. There's a firestorm, of course, prompted, I'm sure you know about it, about the state of Texas blocking uh, the, or refusing to block the new abortion law there. So Adam, as he is so adept to do, will join us here in a couple of minutes to talk through some of these issues that undoubtedly will affect our future as a country. There are times in a parent's life when secretly we want to run away. Sometimes it just seems easier than sticking around. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. Whether you're in a good place right now or a bad place, it's the perfect time to engage with your kids. When your teen does something dopey, when the majority of your time is spent in conflict, you must stay engaged. So here's where you can start today. Build a solid foundation during the good times. Find something your child likes to do and participate together every week. And when conflict erupts, move toward your child. And on those days when you feel like escaping it all, don't cut and run. Hang in there in good times and bad. Want to hear Mark in person? For a list of upcoming events, go to parentingtodaysteens.org. Welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. Carmen is obviously away for today. I'm Peter Kapsner filling in. Carmen will be back in the host chair tomorrow morning. And so delighted to be joined at this time by Adam Carrington, who, if you listen regularly to the show, knows that he, know that he joins us on uh, about every other Monday basis, right? Paul Perot, talk about politics, talk about uh, just different dimensions of understanding legislation in our country. That, and of course, usually a little more in the month of June when Scotusmas comes around. Indeed. He is indeed. also just brilliant about Supreme Court stuff. Well, so. Adam, we're a great, it's uh, just great to have you on the program, especially on a day like today where the Supreme Court is opening its it's a new term, and and of course they do this at this time every year. But boy, it sure seems like this year some of the cases are really going to have an impact on how we understand ourselves as a country moving forward. Yes, and we were talking just before we we went on air that last year wasn't quite like that. There weren't as many big cases that non 
SCOTUS nerds, you know, will, will, <laughs> would be interested in. But I think this is going to be potentially, it'll be one of the most watched in a generation, potentially one of the biggest in a generation. And that's uh, the, the, the one with a bullet beside it uh, as far as, as, as how big it's going to be is the, uh, the case coming out of Mississippi where for the first time in a generation, the court is considering a, a direct challenge to Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey, which are the two main uh, abortion rulings that set the stage for what can and can't be passed legislatively. And that's a big deal, especially considering how many justices on the court have been changed since there's been a challenge like that. So everyone's going to be watching that um, because uh, it's much bigger than any abortion case in 30 years. But even others, there's going to be a Second Amendment case out of New York, which they haven't taken in over a decade. There could be a big affirmative action case that we could talk about. Uh, there's even going to be a uh, another school choice case related to religion and whether uh, uh, lower income parents can use vouchers from the state to go to religiously based schools or not out of Maine. So uh, bit, some really big cases that could also have a real impact on people's lives as well. Adam, when this case from Mississippi and abortion comes in front of the court as a direct challenge to Roe versus Wade, how, how do you see the different Supreme Court justices navigating the arguments related to it? And, and, and along with that, what role does sort of settled precedent play in the stare decisis, I think is the term for that? Uh, how, do, how do they just think through whether to change something that has been in our country for so long, like Roe versus Wade? Right. And this is that that that's I think going to be the deciding factor. I, I'm I'm pretty confident there's a majority of justices that would not have decided Roe and Casey the way they were originally done, if they were on that court. In other words, if they were the first ones to decide it. But you're going to have to look at a couple justices on this question of precedent. And the idea of precedent comes from yes, the text is supposed to rule of a law or of the Constitution, but there's also the precedent that judges should heavily respect what their predecessors on the bench have done, not just out of respect for their colleagues, but out of the consistency of the rule of law so that you as a regular citizen have some dependency that the way the text has been read for a certain amount of time will continue to be the way it's read so that you can order your life accordingly. And now, of course, Ultimately, the text is supposed to rule, and so therefore there are circumstances under which you could change precedent and say it was so wrong that we need to go back to what the text said. How strong that preference is, I think, varies justice to justice. So when I say it's a rule, it's not a hard legal rule. It's just a way that, that the judges think they should uh, should go so that they don't become too capricious. So we're so that's a thing. If you're just wanting to get the nuts and bolts beyond the fundamental arguments about the right to life and, and questions of liberty and what the state and national government should and shouldn't do, the thing to look as to where the deciding judges will decide is how attached are they to precedent? How willing are they to go back on a, on decisions that the courts have been making since 1973, even if they think it was the wrong or the right decision? So that that's going to be something that we're going to have to really look at, because I think that will be the deciding factor for the, the judges that will get to five votes one way or another.
Adam, for those interested in following this decision-making process, when, when will the, the arguments open on this Mississippi case? And then what is the process from there between that and decision-making by the Supreme Court? Yeah, this is something that if you don't know the process, and I remember the first time I had to figure it out, I said, why is this taking so long <laughs> to, to happen? And so the court has already accepted the case. They've said, we will hear the arguments and rule on it. On December 1st, and this will be live streamed, so you can listen to it as it happens, uh, not video, but audio, the, the, there will be oral arguments, and that's where both sides have somewhere between 30 minutes to an hour to make their case verbally to the justices. They've already submitted written arguments and have the justices question them, go back and forth. After that oral argument, the judges will take the written arguments they've been given, the oral arguments they've heard, and they'll do an initial vote. And out of that initial vote, uh, one justice will be assigned to write, try to write the majority opinion. He'll try to write an opinion, he or she, that will get at least four other justices, if not more, to say, yes, I agree with that. There'll be a dissenting opinion being written, and they'll just spend what will probably take months writing and circulating drafts of opinions till everyone has said, I am fine with what's been written, and then they'll finally release it. And that's why it might not be, it'll be argued in December, but very likely we won't see it till June because they want to get the arguments where everyone is satisfied with it, everyone has agreed to join something. And uh, and so, so that's the process, and that's why it bigger opinions take so long to come out is that process of voting, writing, and refining that everyone goes through before everyone's happy. Adam, besides the abortion case coming forward, there's another one that's related to the Second Amendment, of course, and the right to bear arms. And I'm seeing a narrative increasingly being perpetrated by uh, certain sides of the political argument that that want greater regulations on weapons and, and firearms in particular, that this is a public health crisis, that it's not just about right, the right to bear arms, but we're talking about a health crisis. And what do we see in the cases coming forward, Descotis, related to this? A big thing about this also is that the court only in 2008 said that at least from its position, there was an individual right to own a firearm. They'd never really decided that question, but they haven't made any decisions since then to try to clarify because like other rights, the idea is you have the right to own a gun and use a gun responsibly. Now what's responsibly at bare minimum, it is in a way that does not cause violence and harm to another other than maybe in self-defense. And so th th there is a role for gun regulation of certain t weapon types, of, of, certain ac of certain places maybe to have it, of maybe certain people with certain records or, you know, criminal or others uh, to, 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 to have some restraints. But that's under, the court has said, the canopy of you have a basic right to own a gun from the Second Amendment that is is the standard, and it's all ultimately for the purposes of self-defense. And so what the court is going to be doing beyond deciding this particular law of New York, which is about conceal and carry and what reasons you have to give to get a concealed carry license, it's going to be the other, which is going to say that underneath both sides are really arguing for the safety of the individuals involved, but how do you balance an individual's need 
for self-defense, especially with rising crime rates. And and sometimes you live in places where the police can't get there in time, uh, et cetera, et cetera, versus the idea that sometimes people use guns not to protect themselves, but to hurt others. And so both sides at their core have a legitimate point as long as they're trying not to eliminate the other side because both are trying to protect the safety of those involved. And how do we balance that? That's what the court is going to do if, it, if it's doing its job right in this case. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to follow this, Adam. I saw, I think it was a city in Texas that just uh, announced that they're not going to be sending police to non-emergency calls don't call 911 anymore if, in, unless somebody's life is, at thre- is being threatened or it's an active crime scene. So this is going to have some pretty interesting implications for us. I know that you have a webinar coming up that's going to be released. You also have a National Review article that will help people that do want to follow these things, that that geek out as maybe you and me do on some of these topics. So where can people access this webinar when it comes out? There'll be a webinar through ashbrook.org, the John M. Ashbrook Center for Public Affairs. They do a series of educational webinars, and they did one with me. Uh, it was It was recorded live but the recording should be out. I'll, I'll have to check with them soon. It was done last week. I'll make sure I post it on, on, on my social media if people want more of an hour-length version of this. And then in National Review this morning, if I, I don't think it's gone live yet, but very soon will, uh, I'm doing a, 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 a an op-ed level explanation of some of these cases and why they might matter and, 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 and what we might expect going forward for the court this mm-hmm. term. Super helpful, Adam. Let's take a short break. When we come back, we'll change the topic to some of the budget wrangling that is going on in Washington, D.C. between the infrastructure bill as well as a much larger $3.5 trillion bill on the table. And it seems like it's a good Netflix series right now because every day we wake up to something new, a new episode coming out today out of Washington, D.C. This is Mornings Without Carmen. I'm Peter Kapsner filling in for the day. Stay with us. More to come with Adam Carrington. From the Mississippi to the Amazon There's not much we don't agree upon Wish we could get together on tacos, enchiladas and beans Adam, uh, Paul is having way too much fun with the Music Bank this morning celebrating National Taco Day and he was on me earlier in the show for not having breakfast burritos It seems aggressive to start your day with something as spicy as a breakfast burrito Is that on your docket for today? Uh, being from the Midwest, no, I, 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 I was pushed that direction the, the time I was in graduate school in Texas. They just must have stronger stomachs than, <laughs> than, than me as a Midwesterner. I just couldn't quite get on, get on board, but all power to them. Indeed. I think you and I share the same digestive system. That is for sure from the Midwest. Well, let's turn our uh, topic to Washington, D.C. and a different part of the legislative process, and that is the halls of Congress. We, of course, see a lot of wrangling going on about spending well, several trillion dollars here, but they can't say the Democratic side who controls the House and the Senate and, of course, the White House as well. They can't seem to get their act together to to push through this budget. So what do we see in this upcoming week? Things keep getting pushed off day in and day out. Is there any hope that they're going to come to a resolution for this this week? I think there is a, a, a decent chance because they all want a win, but it's playing out a dynamic that we've talked about a few times on this show, which is you have one of the majorities since the year 2000 uh, when Republicans had a comparably narrow majority, but you have a very ambitious agenda that the Democrats are pushing. And when you have that narrow of a caucus, 
then you have um, the moderate and the uh, more base or, or left-leaning wings not getting everything they want, but needing to agree. And that's just playing out with great intensity right now, where you have the infrastructure bill, which is more what the moderates want, particularly uh, uh, Senator Manchin out of West Virginia and Cinema uh, out of out of Arizona. But then you have the more progressive caucus saying we want this three point five trillion reconciliation bill that has a lot more in it. And really, the play has been can those two sides come together? And it's a real test of uh, Joe Biden came in on his his sort of legislative skills as senator, and can he bring those two together? And and I think that. One thing to keep in mind is with how how unpopular cinema and and mansion are in the Democratic Party base, um, they really are doing well in states that aren't necessarily as historically happy with Republicans. So to some degree, the question is, are they more in tune with what's keeping the Democratic Party from being too placating to its base? Are they actually pulling it in a direction that makes it more uh, majoritarian uh, or are they just, you know, ticking off the base? That's that's part of the interesting dynamic beyond all the money that's being spent. Yeah, it's interesting how many people who might be fiscal conservatives find themselves now cheering for Joe Manchin and Kristen Cinema to continue to hold the line. You and I are people that have to teach in a classroom, and so we have to weigh all sides of an argument, even though I know we both tend towards fiscal, fiscal conservatism ourselves, and, and I'm sure many of our listeners do too. But can you make the case for the other side, Adam, if the, if the progressive win the day and $3.5 trillion is brought into law, is, is there upside to that? What would be the counter argument to what I would understand it to be? Um, yeah, I, I thought I, I could make a little more for the infrastructure bill, which is also pretty hefty. Just the idea of the the national government being the entity that can can support a national infrastructure to help us travel, help our commerce. The, this other bill is harder because so, you got to get to the question one. When are we going to have spent so much that the inflation that has already started to occur gets runaway? Uh, when when do you get to the point where other things where 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 we where money becomes useless? <laughs> uh, that said, uh, I I will say that even if we disagree with uh, some of the uh, the way it's being done through the national government, there are some priorities for making sure children have adequate health care that maybe can't, uh, uh, making sure those are taken care of that are the elderly and the infirm. Uh, we may say that there are more loving and communal ways to do so that are outside of the federal government, but at least we can say, I think, that those are being done, that those goals are noble things to help human beings, even if we're, we're, we're not on board with them being the best way or maybe even the most helpful way to those involved. It's interesting to see the momentum with which the very progressive side of the Democratic Party is is gaining in terms of their voice in this country. I have seen that tied into the way that young people are being increasingly educated. And, and again, you and I are in university life. And I, I think a fair-minded approach does suggest that the next generation really is growing up with, with these ideas that we've seen that, that seem so far off base. And yet that gets to be a pretty common understanding in the next generation about society, about socialism, about spending, about these kinds of ways to, to structure our life together. This is going to be, this is not just a one-off thing, right, Adam? This is an increasing part of where we're headed as a country. Yeah, and it's why education is so important and why 
a real education matters where you're actually exposed to both sides and mm -hmm. exposed to both sides in a thoughtful way. I, I make my students write a counter argument in every paper they turn into me. And what I tell them is you need to give a fair representation of a view you don't agree with, say, give it fairly, and then tell me why you still don't agree. And that's not just for civility. That's actually to show that we know our own side enough to be able to thoughtfully engage with the other side. And I think you're right. It's, it's interesting uh, as much as and no victories are permanent. And some of the victories that were had over communism internationally, but domestically with the sort of Reagan revolution that for, for all the things it didn't accomplish really set limits on what government uh, was willing to invest in uh, how much it was willing to leave to communities and others, how much that argument is 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 open again. And I think it really comes down to to what degree is self-government through this entity called the government that we've formed, and how much is self-government actually a ruling of one's own soul? And it, to some degree, it's both, but uh, I think the balance is really tipping much toward uh, ruling through an entity, not through oneself. And so that's something to watch if, if uh, what are going to be the downsides of that and to what degree can it be mitigated, especially through education. Yeah, Adam, we just have about a minute left, but I think what you said is a really important thing for us to consider as believers that we really do understand all sides of the argument, that we don't just pare it back that which we agree with, that we ever really an opportunity to be thought leaders about how to move forward. And part of that is understanding the other side. Absolutely. And I think bringing it back to a, a biblical and Christian perspective is to say that uh, we're fallen human beings as well, but we ultimately know two things. We know the truth through the gospel and through what God's revealed in nature, and we know ultimately that God is on his throne. And I think that shouldn't make us shrink back from engagement with society. It shouldn't make us pull back. It should make us engaged all the new to know that we are more than conquerors and that God will work that out in his time, but we can love and care and serve uh, boldly in the city that God has put us in. Well, Adam, great to talk to you again this morning. Just so appreciate the wisdom on some of these topics. I know that you'll be leaned into heavily in the months ahead as we keep walking through these important cases. So have a great rest of the day. We'll talk to you soon. Looking forward to it. Thanks so much. We'll take a short break and wrap up Hour 1 here on Mornings Without Carmen and preview what's coming up next in Hour 2. Well, I sure loved what Adam Carrington had to share there, especially at the end, about intellectual honesty and humility, the idea of understanding the other side of the argument uh, fully so that we can walk with some measure of, of maturity in so many of these conversations, holding true to the values of the kingdom without compromise, firmly fixing our eyes on Jesus, but also doing so in a way that is engaging and invitational and, and not just seeking to power over other people as uh, I think we're worried about getting powered over ourselves, so to walk in a different kind of way. Well, we'll step away for a couple minutes and come back for Hour 2, be joined by Mindy Bells and talk about some of the international headlines that also impact us as believers. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.